Do you wanna play a game? Do you like scary movies? Do you wanna eat some brains? Is your chainsaw arm groovy? How bloodthirsty could a talking plant be? Eat your liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Come play with us forever, cause down here we all float. I never drink wine, so you're gonna need a bigger boat. Or a throat to choke, whether you're in the prim or dairy. Got red rum where your blood from, put your dead son in the cemetery. It's him or carry, be very afraid. You'll be our number one fan and get carried away. All working, no play, you know it always means you're in trouble, son. I came to chew gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum. What if Quint killed Jaws' his father? What if the Bob's body was marijuana? What if the leprechaun got a job as a bank guard? What if the Wolfman had a cowbell instead of Every Nars? scary movie made since Oscar Wilde was writing letters Had canon to watch them all and tell you how to make them better So put your earbuds in and forget what you're planning It's time to take our heads and shoot them out of a cannon 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 of a cannon. Shoot him out of a cannon. Shoot him out of a cannon. Shoot him out of a cannon. Head cannon. Head Welcome cannon. to Head Cannon. Tonight we have a very special guest, Mr. Todd McGinnis, actor, writer, uh, brilliant man, extraordinaire. How are you doing this evening? I am doing very well, Corey. How are you doing? Good, good. Hey, Brent. Doing well. Brent, Brent, how about you? How are you doing tonight? It's just another manic Monday. Just <laughs> having a good night <laughs> what a weird that, that's such a sorry a weird connection like yesterday some uh, a buddy of mine on facebook posted uh, a picture of Susanna hoffs from the bangles like from the 80s like jumping in the air and doing the splits with a guitar okay and, like, like some old black and white picture of her and he's and he's like yeah i'd like to see her do that now so i I, I went and found a picture of what she looks like now and sent it to him. And I was like, yes, I'd like to see her do that now, too. She still looks really good. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's some people that just don't age. Yeah, she, she's one of them. Like, she's, oh, my gosh, she's she's doing, she's hanging in pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I feel like, it, you know, nowadays it's not every day you hear about the Bengals, so. Yeah, exactly. It was just, that was just sort of random. I'm like, in two days in a row? We have a friend who's a teacher, and... I mean, she's older than Kara and I. I, I. I mean, I think she's mid forties, and she looks like a teenager. Yeah. It's, like, oh, yeah. it's so weird how a timeless someone can be. Yeah. Some some people just like they just you don't see them for a long time and they just change a lot. You know, it's, it's like just to the point where like they don't look like the same person. And other people, they could do almost. It's like they could do anything. They could walk in in a full-on furry suit. You'd still know it was them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Who's the chick? We went to high school with her, but after high school, she like went to Europe for a year, and she came back and she had an accent, like like as though she was from England. Is that I, messed up? Like that's not. I don't remember that. Fake accent. No, that, that takes actually that takes nothing. That's that takes nothing. Like I mean, I remember when uh, when. Because you know, again, I'm old. I remember when Madonna went to England because she was briefly married to Guy Ritchie, oh, right, and, like, yeah. and everybody was ragging on Madonna. I think this was pre-social media days, but whatever. Everybody was ragging on Madonna for oh well, she's put on a fake English accent, and it's like, 
I got news for you guys. Like that's how the world works. Like I, I my wife was working in Texas. I flew down for a weekend oh. to meet her. I was in Houston for 15 minutes and everything was y'all. And, and like, and like by the time we got to the restaurant, like the, the, the waitress in the restaurant was asking, you know, you know where I was from, from around there. And it's, it's just like, cause I, okay, I'm an actor as well. But the thing is, it's just, it's not just an actor thing. It's a human thing. Like we, we, most of us pick up on accents. Like if I went to England, the one thing I can guarantee you uh, is I would not have my own accent within about an hour. Like it would be, it would actually be impossible for me to speak in my standard, you know, Southern Ontario twang, you know, <laughs> right. You know? See, I feel like if I went over there, they'd be like, Oh yes. You know, have a seat right this way. But you know, and I feel like within 15 minutes, I'd be like, Oh, thanks governor. Oh, that's the fish. And they're like, okay, this is, that's offensive. That's, <laughs> I know, but that's, but it's so, but I want, I have such like a compulsion to do it though. If I oh, hear someone right. with an accent, like I want to talk like them. Right. That, that is actually the, that is the American compulsion though. When, oh, when, yeah. yeah. And the thing is, but, but it's very specific because it's, it's, it's not that you're going into a British accent, whether you know it or not, what you're specifically doing is, uh, Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins, <laughs> right, yeah. which is widely regarded as the worst English accent ever done. <laughs> and the reason it's regarded is not because he couldn't have done one. It's in those days of shooting, like nobody came up to him and said, hey, do like the, he started doing this like weird thing that he was doing. And nobody came up, like including Julie Andrews, who's in the movie. Nobody came up and said, you're not really going to do that, are you? <laughs> like, you know, he, he was doing song and dance, and he was doing his great comedy. Like, he was a ridiculously talented guy. Right. Yeah. Nobody bothered to point out, could you do a better accent than that? Or maybe just no accent at all? It's like, so. <laughs> but, yes. It's, but that's but that's the number one thing. But, like, you've just perpetuated, like, this is, like, I don't know, ten generations. Because it's like, you, like, like Conan, Conan O'Brien. Uh, uh, yeah, Conan O'Brien. Uh, like on his team, what he does the exact same thing. Whenever he talks about British accents, I'm at this exact point with the computer where I where I'm like, do the glasses help or hurt? I don't quite know if I need them or not. Uh, it's, uh, anyway, so he, he does the hello governor, kind hello of like, governor, what's your uncle? Which is still Dick Van Dyke. Like that's yeah. it's it's Dick Van Dyke's little cockney thing. Anyway, that's that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I was working in a food store once. They were they were doing Renos, and this uh, one of the guys on the crew was was Scots. He was from uh, he was from Glasgow, and he, he walked in. I was just like sitting reading the book on my lunch over, and, and he walks in. And I'm not going to do the accent properly now because I don't have it in my head. But it's like he walked in, like, "Hey, how you going? How, how you going? Oh, oh, great. How are you?" And, 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 I, and I, it was out of my mouth before I said it. Like I just answered him back in an accent. He goes, "Oh, you're from Glasgow then." And I'm like. Oh shit! I had to think really fast because <laughs> this guy was like really big and quite intimidating, and it's like the last thing I wanted to do was have him think, "Oh yeah, I just thought I'd mock your accent." Um, so, like, oh, so, but fortunately, I had a straight up cover, which was I was like, "Sorry, I didn't mean to do that." Like my grandfather was from Glasgow uh, and stuff like that, and it just if I hear it, uh, it just comes out, and he goes, "Oh wow, that's great, that's great." And I was like, it, "Which is." True, my grand my grandfather was from Glasgow, but my grandfather came over when he was a kid. He had no Scottish accent whatsoever. But anyway. <laughs> See, I was hoping you were gonna say like you just had to like lean into it. Yeah, and too. to this to this day that guy still thinks you're Scottish. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I, I do have I do have people who think I'm British of various kinds depending on when they met me, you know, especially especially from acting work and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it's like there's there's people who met me doing that stuff and depending on the project some like especially it was like film and tv projects i would usually stay in accent the whole day mm -hmm. because 
jump in because especially if it was anything tricky at all, I'd rather stay in it the whole day and carry on the conversation at lunch in the accent because it was contemporary. It was like if you're doing something weird and Shakespearean or whatever, that's that's a whole different thing. Yeah. And like, yeah, I'm not gonna I'm gonna talk not gonna talk pseudo Elizabethan for the entire lunch. Yeah. That's, <laughs> <a little> goofy. <laughs> Nice. Well, so so what have you been up to lately? I know, I think last time we talked to you, you had a book that was going to come out soon at the time, I think, or? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I uh, actually, before we jump into that, though, I meant to ask how you guys are doing. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good. Doing well. I'm just, uh, yeah, just working. My kids went back to school last week from the, from the holiday break. Um, so, and it's really snowy here in Chicago right now, so. Whoa. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, we, we got we got a big dumping of that about a week and a half ago. Okay. We we got like about I don't know about two feet of snow. It's all and I I had I was drive I was driving home in the morning. Uh, I, I was doing an overnight and I was and I was like oh it's fine whatever there's gonna be snow it's cool and I was I was driving home and it was like uh, on a on a highway just completely covered in snow and my windshield wipers died <laughs> like just like. It was because it was one of those snows. It was the perfect combination of moisture and and and, and blowing cold wind, and so it create uh, the the heater on your windshield uh, down at the bottom of your windshield. Basically, just it's just an ice machine. It just it just manufactures ice. Right. So one of my windshield wipers just popped off, and I'm like, well, that's the passenger Whoa. side. Fine, I can uh, I'll get home last night. Engine two is out. <laughs> exactly. And I, I'm driving in second gear like the whole the whole way. Like, I, I've still got a, a, a manual transmission because that's why I like to drive. Uh, and I was like, so I'm I'm in second gear the whole way. I'm like I am in no. This is the key to surviving driving in snow. Don't be in a freaking hurry. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So like so I'm I'm doing like whatever it is, 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour. I don't know, 40, 40 kilometers whatever and uh so anyway so i'm just getting to a point where i'm going over a highway bridge and i've got to do a bunch of sort of dips and turns and stuff like that to continue on this highway my windshield wiper the one windshield wiper pops off and lands on the hood because it's so frozen up something caused it to, to disengage i'm like all right cool i'll be fine and then and then the other one goes down and just stops and i'm like <laughs> oh man I'm like, it was... well this isn't good because it's like because the all the snow is instantly like melting on your windscreen. You can't see a thing. So I, I put my window down and I'm, I've got my elbow out the window. I am, I am standing up, you know, and of course I have to change gears and, and reach the gear shift. So I'm standing up and leaning out of the window <laughs> to be able to see. And of course the way the wind is blowing about every 20 seconds, it's like somebody just comes up and grabs a couple handfuls of snow and just shoves them directly into your eyeballs. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, you know, it, it seemed like I would be able to get home because I've driven in worse weather than this before. But now I, I just might die. I just <laughs> might die. This might be it. So anyway, uh, I, I, I managed to get off the highway, pulled under a bridge, hacked all the ice out of it, and thank God my windshield wipers came back on. It was like a drive that normally takes me 25, 30 minutes took three hours. Oh, that's <laughs> and that's I was going against traffic. Like there, there were people like if someone had said, hey, you have to come into work today. This is one of those rare days where as a Canadian, you would go, yeah, no, that's not happening. Right. Yeah, <laughs> there, there is there is unless unless people's lives depend on it and I've got a Humvee or an 18 wheeler, I'm not coming into work. Right. Yeah. Not <laughs> worth it. No. When anyway. you, well, when you were talking about your uh, your windshield wiper flying off and then your the driver's side windshield wiper just laying down. I almost imagine that maybe it was grieving 
the loss of the first windshield wiper. You know, yeah. like, it just it's didn't like have the, the will to go on. Dead dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, we've been partners for so long. Like, oh yeah. man, it was that was terrible. It was that was it, it went from like slow and tedious to terrifying in a matter of minutes. And the worst, because the worst part was like all of a sudden now it's all weaving around. But like we've got at that point. It's been snowing for hours. There's a minimum of in, of two feet of snow everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so even though, like, the highway I'm on, I'm heading out of uh, – I'm near Toronto, so I'm heading out of Toronto at that time. Everyone else is heading in. Uh, and the thing is – which is good, but because I'm heading out, like, there's no – there's nowhere that you can see asphalt at all. Right. right? Like, it's 100% snow. So the moment your windscreen becomes, like, all blurry – that's it like there's no detail like there's you can't see tire tracks you can't see uh, asphalt you can't see where the road you can't see either side of the road the only thing that you know for sure is you it's very important that you don't go near either side of the road because either side of the highway it's like a three-lane highway but either side of it has snow drifts right. that are somewhere between one oh, and yeah. three feet deep right. and if, <laughs> if, you catch, done, if, you hit, if you hit one of those right you're yeah, done for the day. you catch one you're done. Like, i passed about a dozen cars, you know, of, of people who had pulled themselves, who had plowed themselves into these things and then couldn't get out. And it's like, and it's like, I, you did that by a special combination of stupid or going too fast or whatever. And you, something I noticed, no offense to anybody who drives one, but high, high ratio of BMWs in the snowdrifts. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, that would suck. That is, that is, that is clearly too much car for some people. Right. Right. It's like, like, I, I yeah, do you know how to drive it in the snow? Because if you don't, you should leave it at home. Right. It's expensive. <laughs> yeah, it seems like if you're at that point where you can afford a BMW, you've been driving for a while and know like how to drive in Canada. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I think I think in the recent economy, I think I think there's a whole new thing that you know didn't used to be. There. I I wonder when I see the number of like sort of luxury, you know, whatever luxury cars or upper end cars on the road. I, I look at them and I'm like. How many of these did anyone actually buy versus how many of these are just a lease? Right. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's like and I think a lot of people are leasing them like like for a little while, about ten years ago around where I live, suddenly there were Humvees everywhere. And I'm like, there there's no way these people can afford Humvees. And it's like, <laughs> oh, they're leasing them. Yeah. Okay. And it's like <laughs> I feel I feel into that. Yeah. Uh, for a few years. I'll never do that again. No, I, I want my own car. Like that's yeah. I can't. Car. I can't take the pressure. It's like it's like if if my car is a mess. If I wreck my car up. If I dent my car, that's fine. It's my car. Right. It's like if it's a lease. It's like oh, every, everything that happens to it is like well, this is just going to cost me more when I turn or, or when I turn the thing in. So right. I, I I solved that I solved that problem years ago. Like my wife has the nice. You know, we bought a nice car for my wife. She, yeah. She, well, actually, she's got like the Ford. Escape or the Explorer, whatever, whichever one's the SUV one. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, only, I've we've had it for like three years. I still can't remember what the name is. Um, but anyway, it's automatic, so it's boring to drive. So I don't really think about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and I drive like a, a, a crappy Hyundai station wagon that I've had, you know, that I've had for years. And and you know, it's like that's that's what I like driving because I'm like, you know, it's like, oh well, if I if I slide into a snowdrift and uh, and it dents it, I don't care. I'm driving this thing into the ground anyway. Right. Okay, I have, I have a Canada question then. Yeah, yeah. So, so I grew up here in in southern Indiana. My father, you know, he like would help deliver milk, you know, it, with his uncle. It was like old school. He's an old school guy. Um, it's illegal to have um, snow tires here. In that there are these 
spy you know like a pellet gun would have those like conical pellets pellet bb right. things mm-hmm. conical imagine those or like in like some like um is it, uh, sorry, is, is punk it... rocker's jacket stud thing <laughs> yeah okay. the, like, the little spiky studs yeah oh, okay yeah so th- those aren't snow tires those are the uh like the ch- snow chains there were chains though there were like these little it was like 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 stud piercings oh right on the tire around the radio yeah around the tires and oh, okay. um and they were elite, but my dad still put them on my truck when I was little, when, little, when I was like, you know, 17 or 18. And I was like lazy and wouldn't like to even take them off. So it'd be like spring, summer, I'd be driving here. Tick, 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 tick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's illegal here because it tears up the road. Can you do things like that there, though? Because it's like there's always snow. Uh, no, no. It's, it's like and as much as the Canadians would love to have you believe it, it, there isn't always snow, especially where I'm from, which is like the southern part of Ontario. So, you know, they, it's like the, the biggest thing that people from Toronto love to do is like and, and, and you know, I, I admit it when I was younger, I did it once or twice, too, is like people from Buffalo come over, whatever they come up to. I don't know. Some some teams doing an exhibition game up here, or they come. There there are actually sad souls in, in Buffalo who actually come across to watch the Maple Leafs play hockey uh, and stuff like that. It's, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute. It's like you know, of of the two teams, the far more losery team is the one you've driven over to see. Anyway, um, but when they come over, like people from Buffalo, they get real winter. Like like whatever Chicago gets or Toronto gets is peanuts compared to what Buffalo. Like I mean, if we got a couple feet. Buffalo got six feet. Like, right. I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's just like winter dumps on them like crazy. And then they come over here, but their inherent assumption is like, as though they've never thought about it. They're like, my God, just like you, we got it so bad. You guys, I don't even know how you survive. And it's like, <laughs> dude, like turn on your television. You get our channels from right across the lake. And if you haven't figured it out yet, your side of the lake is the side that gets all the snow because the cold air blows over the lake. It's not snowing on our side at all. <laughs> right. You guys are getting screwed by the lake effect snow. We get very little of that. It's like, I mean, when we get it, yeah, we get it. But like, and compared to the rest of Canada, we get very little in the way of, down, down in our, we get very little in the way of, of, you know, heavy winter anymore. So, yeah. but yeah, we got dusting this past week and it was this weekend. It was Sunday morning we got about a quarter inch of snow and my daughter was super excited, but then got distracted a little bit that morning and like played a video game or something. We were sleeping in, but anyway, she then put on her full snow gear. I mean, a snow suit, everything opened the door, expect this winter wonderland. And it was just all melted. <laughs> so prepared and all oh. the gear, everything on snow boots, everything. It was, so it was just gone. And so I could hear her from, down, from upstairs, just like freaking out. Yeah. Well, see, and that thing is like where, where I, so where I am, I mean, not so much when I was a kid, we used to get more real winter and also we weren't under, we weren't, we weren't all entirely under Toronto. Well, Toronto wasn't what it, what it is now and, and its pollution umbrella wasn't nearly as big. So, uh, it was like, it's like, you, you live this close to Toronto now, you're rarely getting much in the way of real winter. But, uh, but it's like the, in the years that it transitioned, uh, there was that whole thing of you look outside, you, oh, it's winter. Okay, cool. And you dressed for winter and you went out and within like two or three hours, you're like, I am so overdressed for this entire day. <laughs> and it's like, and that's, and a lot of, a lot of Canadians like in this area, like that's why you'll often, well, locally, you'll hear lots of stories of Canadians going out, st- doing stupid, just driving, la, 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 like it's an ordinary day, like, like maybe like last Monday, like they're not dressed for winter and then yeah. their car breaks down and they're like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm freezing. I don't have gloves and whatever. It's like, you know, it's like it's and it's because 
everyone's gotten sick of the whole, like, uh, having this whole second wardrobe of heavier clothes to get you through winter when, yes. let's face it, we're indoors, we're in our heated cars, or we're indoors. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, like, Thank you for saying that. Yeah. We just don't, we don't, I we, hate jackets. We, yeah, we don't, we don't bring all that crap with us, you know, it's like most of the time. It's like, it's like, I actually, I actually, see, I'm, I actually love coats. I'm a coat guy. It's like, because it's like, because it's honestly in Canada for most of my life, it's like the defining feature of your wardrobe. Because oh. <laughs> that's, because most of the time you are going to wear a coat when you go out or have one with you. So you might as well have a nice one. Although most of the time now when I'm going places, I'm, I'm working places where I'm like, oh yeah, it's like, no, I, I don't want to wear my good coat here. <laughs> I'll wear my warm coat, but not my good coat. <laughs> That's great. You have a warm coat and a good coat. I like that. I have so many coats, my friend. <laughs> That's the actor thing though. It's like, it's, everything's a write off. It's all part of your wardrobe, right? So, like, oh, I got like, I got coats of every kind. It's like you never know when you need them for auditions or crap. Right. <laughs> uh, sorry, Corey, you asked me a while ago. I, I tangented, tangented us. But, uh, yeah, last time we talked, uh, I had a novel that uh, been oh, published. Yeah. And uh, it was called Thunderbolts and Dunderheads, a hysterically funny comedy novel. And uh, that had gone over really well. And I, I was releasing the next one, which I did release about a month later, which was called uh, Knave of Hearts. It has an impossibly long site subtitle uh, <laughs> for, just for the sake of being amusing, but it's basically, it's sort of a, uh, it's, it's sort of a Renaissance farce. It's kind of like, uh, imagine like Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean uh, stuck in some kind of weird British sitcom in the Renaissance era kind of thing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's more or less the tone of it. So, and they're, they're both selling pretty well. And I've, I've actually, tweaked a few things all, and all, all of a sudden recently just started getting all kinds of like Kindle reads. So all tons of people are reading the uh, eBooks now. Okay. So, nice. Is, well, you have great like, comments on Amazon. Was that? You have good comments on Amazon for Thunderbolts <laughs> and Dunderheads. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, like it's, been, it? it's been nice so far. I'm glad <laughs> I paid all those people. No. <laughs> <This one guy. laughs> I did not do that. If Amazon is listening, right. it's illegal. <laughs> you just, you paid them in coats. <laughs> special Canadian coats. <laughs> I will get you a coat that will keep you warm. <laughs> if only you'll give me a good review. No, yeah, it's, it's like I mean, it, it, of course, com comedy is uh, a, was a weird thing. I, it was a project I did when, we, when everything was shut down for COVID, which uh, you know it sort of still is up here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like, but anyway, so when we did that, when we did that the first time, and everybody just went to hide, I was like, well, I'm gonna keep myself from going insane, and I stopped working on some of the darker psychological thriller stuff I was writing and I just adapted a couple of my comedy plays yeah. into because it was fun to do and it made me laugh and I was like so I put them out there and I'm actually really thrilled that there are people reading them at all because it wasn't until I'd really put them out that after a lifetime of reading it occurred to me that comedy isn't actually a genre in novels like there are funny novels mm -hmm. but like, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is filed under sci-fi yeah Goodman's is filed under fantasy Right. Like, yeah. I mean, everything that's comedy is is it's whatever its subgenre is. That's how it's marketed, because there is no there is no comedy shelf in a bookstore. Yeah. It's yeah. like and even on, even on Amazon, there's no there's no like if you you can search comedy. Right. There is there is no comedy category. There's mystery and thriller and sci fi with all the subgenres. But there is there is no comedy. And the problem is mine was like, so it's it's a one of them is a comedy mythological. Right. The other one is like a comedy romance right and it's like it's like which is technically true but uh oh you're the best I, amazon just told me you just ordered my book you're the best human being ever 
That's awesome. <laughs> it's coming on Wednesday. I'll get it on Wednesday. That's awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get some laughs from it. Oh, yeah, I'll read it. That's the main point. That's the main point for it. But, yeah. Anyway. Nice. Well, we've covered all the winter weather that there is to cover. So, now, wait, are you, so you're in Indiana still? Me? Brent is. Yeah, I am. Okay. And uh, are you guys getting winter down there right now or not much? It's just really cold. Like, it's almost like I want it. It's like a tease. I want it to snow big. I want one big snow and then I'm done with it. Right. Yeah. It gets gross here. You know, like, I'm sure it gets gross everywhere. It gets slushy yeah. and black, tarry yeah. here yes. in the city. And so you almost I like, want I like one good one. Yeah. It's like we, we had a few years, like, whatever. Every once in a while, you kind of long for those years for us where it'd be like you'd get a really nice snow just before Christmas mm-hmm. and everything would be nice and white and it's all very pretty and all the lights and everything is really, really cool. And then by January, early February, you know, it's like everything would go all slushy and gross and you'd sort of, you'd, you'd root for that next uh, snowfall just so everything didn't look so gross. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just, yeah, just give, me, give me one more coating of white paint to get me through uh, <laughs> February and then all this crap can go away. And it's like, yeah. cause you know, there's, there's all kinds of people who are, who are like, you know, give me the snow so I can go skeeing. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's that's harder to do here. We don't, we don't have we don't have mountains that are high enough in Ontario that they have their own sort of you know uh, climate their own climate at the top. Like you know, in BC, it can be it can be summer. You can still go snowing. You can still go skiing at the top of mountains. You know because yeah. that's the Rockies for you. <laughs> but uh, yeah. we don't have anything remotely like that in Ontario. So it's yeah. like yeah, if, you, if if it isn't cold consistently cold and snowy, you're not skiing. So. Yeah, they can, they can only do so much with fake snow, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife was born in New Mexico, and she would live in the desert, right? But you yeah. would look out into the mountains, and you'd see snow caps on those things. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, that's cool. I think we talked about this when, we, when I did you know, you guys before, but that I'd gone down, gone down to uh, uh, Phoenix and then over uh, and, and, and driven across uh, Phoenix, from Phoenix to um, Tucson. And uh, that was my first time actually being in the desert, uh-huh. and and to learn that the uh, the 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 well, this won't mean anything to a whole other generation, but to, but to learn that the cactuses from the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner cartoons, like that's exactly what they look like. <laughs> like that's exactly like that's the Bugs Bunny the 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 Roadrunner Coyote cartoons is like that is exactly what it looks like. <laughs> like holy crap! I, exactly, exactly. It's like, it's like, Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's yeah. I think the one time I spent much time in the in a, in the desert. Well, I took a trip when I was young. I was probably about twenty, yeah. and went out to California. And then and uh, but one night we were camping in Death Valley, and I got we got lost. Me and me and two of my friends we we left the campsite and just ended up like walking out into the desert. We thought that would be a great idea. Um, but after, so we walked out for like an hour and a half and then we're like, okay, well we should turn around and go back. Well, like two, three hours later, we still weren't back at the campsite and we were like, we all stopped and we were like, fuck. We're, <laughs> we're oh, yes. So Can I add to that story? Because I've heard this story before. I like this story. Yeah. They left behind a lady. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, we're going to go walking. And the lady was like, I'm good. I'm going to stay here by myself at this campsite. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't, she didn't want to come with us. Uh-huh. Probably because she knew you were gonna get lost. She, she was smart. She was the smart one. Yeah, 
Yeah. He was like, I'm going to stay here with the beer and the weed. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that was the only thing we took with us. Had we been smart, we should we would have taken water, but no. What, supplies? Yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps a loaf of bread to leave some breadcrumbs. Right. The desert has killed so many hippies. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, where do, you, where do you think cactuses come from? They just die. They die in the desert with their arms out, hippies, and they just turn into cacti. <laughs> wow, that's, that's way more hippies than I thought they were. They, 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 they stop in that pose. It's like they're going to grab a frisbee and they have like a burrito in the other hand. Like that's the <laughs> and then the, uh, the, the little round cactuses that are by the bottom, that's actually just a growth around a hacky sack. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Oh, frozen forever in a game of hacky sack that never ends yeah. <laughs> you know, so, some... these are like those things that like you, you know any sort of like consumable that you then can like biodegrade maybe they even like put seeds within like paper or something you throw it away and it <laughs> sprouts a flower right <laughs> well let's i want to talk about so the movie yeah, uh, let's talk about the movie you brought us oh, todd yeah. was it's not a movie i've seen before and it it is way fucking weirder than I. It is not anything I was expecting from this movie. Uh, oh, cool! But it's so the Exorcist, nineteen nineties, The Exorcist three. Yeah, uh, was the movie. So, uh, so yeah, I want to ask you, what's uh, why did you choose this movie? What what does this movie mean to you? So this was one I, I was I was happy when you were like, hey, well, why don't we try this one because I hadn't seen it. Um, so I'm a horror movie fan for my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's, it's my as a writer, my favorite genres are comedy and horror and thriller, uh, and I mean, and the reason is pretty simple. Uh, I mean, other than just there, that's the kinds of stories that I enjoy. Although I a lot, enjoy lots of them, um, technically, those are the most challenging genres. It's yeah. like people don't think about that, but it's like, um, like it's, it's, I'll put it in theater terms because it's easier to understand in theater terms. You go and see a play that's a drama. You have no idea what it's going to be about, but what you can expect is a bunch of people are going to talk about their feelings and they're going to argue and at some point somebody's going to cry and somebody's going to yell at somebody and slam a door and then it's over and wasn't that poignant and brilliant and we all applaud and whatever. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's absolutely genius. Like, that's drama, right? right? But if you're doing, which is cool, and, and, and as an actor, there's nothing more fun than doing drama except possibly doing, like, Chekhov. <laughs> which I'm going to officially alienate a million people by going, I, I, you can't pay me enough to watch Chekhov. <laughs> I'll happily be in it, but you can't pay me enough to watch it. Right. Uh, and it's like, and the thing is, so you do the, you do the, as an actor, you do these plays and you, and, and if it's a drama, it's like, great, you go out, you do your thing at the end, everybody applauds cause that's the social contract and you go away and everybody's like, wow, we did great. And it's like, we have no idea if we did great. They were required to applaud at the end, and there was no noise in the beginning because there were no stakes. If it's comedy, however, you will definitely know by the end of the play whether you suck or not. Yeah. You, <laughs> That's like, true. If, if right. you chose a play that, that was funny when you read it, mm-hmm. you know, if the audience isn't howling with laughter throughout the show, I mean, like, I, and I mean a real comedy because there are lots of plays that get called comedy. And I'm like, no, that's a drama with comic relief. That's a drama with like two or three jokes over the course of an hour and a half. It's like comedy makes you laugh. And if it doesn't make you laugh, it's failed. And the same thing is true with horror. So the hardest thing to do, though, with horror, with these with these genres and also I'll narrow it in on horror. 
the hardest thing to do in horror, I think, is to not just create an atmosphere and scare you, which mm -hmm. is the primary function of a horror story, but to actually deliver a good story with good acting, like with, I mean, obviously in the case of film, like with good acting, but with like great characters, with excellent dialogue, and it's like, like it's an actual story. Because like most horror movies, if you, if you took out the scary crap, you're like, why would I watch this? Right. Right? Like, I mean, I mean, like, we all know why slasher films were huge in the 80s, because we'd reached the, the point commercially where um, it was completely acceptable without getting, uh, I can't remember what the, the super heavy duty rating is in the US, where it's like, no one's allowed to see this because it has sex in it, or it's like practically right. pornography. Yeah, like, NC-17, NC yeah. NC yeah, so like in the 80s, uh, you know, it was, it was like, uh, you started getting the slasher films, right? Which were which were an extension in a way. They were kind of a toned down extension of the of the ex, uh, exploitation films of the early seventies. Mm -hmm. uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all the you know, I Spit on Your Grave, all the rape and revenge films, right? Yeah. Um, you know, which were designed to sort of repulse you and and all that sort of stuff. Um, so by the eighties, though, they were like, okay, we're going to make these cool like. Uh, they looked cool at the time. They almost never look cool when you look back at them 20 years later, but at the time they looked quite good. Uh, and it's like, and the thing was, and it was, the formula was pretty simple. Give me like a half a dozen reasonably hot teenagers who will all more or less have sex at some point and then be killed by the slasher with the machete or the ax or the whatever. And the point was, you know, especially for boys who were the major art, major market for these, there's boobs on screen. Right. And there was no internet yet. So, boobs on screen that was that was a whole other world right right uh, it's, Sold. Like, it's also it's also common now that everybody's lost interest in sex and whatever our whole society will probably be dead in 50 years but it's like but back then it was still man i'm good so you know i have a vasectomy but i'm still yeah but you're but you're gonna try like you didn't my heart is still there right. your heart is still in it that's how it should be it gives it gives hope for humanity right. uh, but anyway so like th so this movie uh for me it's i have in my head i have a couple different lists of best horror movies of all time or, or not best but my favorite horror movies of all time yeah this is on the list of my favorite horror one of my favorite horror movies of all time that also happens to be just a really good movie mm -hmm. so it's it's a movie that i've read because there's people i know who don't they're not really they're not they don't want to see a lot of slasher stuff or bloody stuff or whatever and that's fine and so every once in a while so i'll go you know you tend to like dramas and stuff more watch this one because i mean yeah it's it's uh yeah so anyway it's it's, it's for like me, law and order with ghosts <laughs> yeah it, well it is it's, it's it's a procedural it's sort of a procedural investigation yeah um that but with with sort of excellent dialogue and whatever and i mean if you're in the mood for it, like George C. Scott, there's a few roles that George, when George C. Scott played Patton, nobody else could have played Patton. He was freaking genius in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he was genius in a bunch of things uh, and some of that. But uh, he has the distinction of being, for my money, I, I don't I don't really care what your list is. I think he's in two of the greatest horror movies of all time. And I do include Exorcist Three Legion in that. And the other one is The Changeling, which is, I think, the greatest haunted house movie of all time. Like, I haven't seen that one. Oh, you're, you're, again, uh, take a deep breath because it's shot at the very end of the 70s so that, you know, you, you, there's the culture shock of, mm, okay, there's it's 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 got a little bit of that cliched kind of feel to it. But right. when you get past that, uh, it's something like that okay. it's it's a it's a straight up haunted house movie. And when 
I don't know if you, like the remake of The Haunting, which been, has been remade a couple times. The, there was a remake of it that came out in like the '90s with Liam Neeson, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and this big, and it was, it was the Changeling with George and and Exorcist Three Legion are the exceptions to the rule. For the most part, horror movies with big name stars in them suck. Yeah, because they're usually not scary. Uh, they, they, they usually con- and, and all kinds of things are, are jigged around in the story like they're t- because why is a big name star doing this movie and it's not just for the money it's like oh this is a really good role for me right. well often the really good character that this actor gets to sh- they want to show this different side of themselves but the question is does that lend itself to this movie being scary right and nine times out of ten it doesn't and the thing I love about Legion is it's a beautiful merger I mean it is a mystery it is a cop investigation uh, that has a few good uh, I'll, I'll call them jump scares for the sake of a better term there's right. a couple good sort of jump scare moments you know the ones I'm talking about but yeah. more importantly there's just it's a slow build it starts off super slow and then it slowly gets into this layer of just yeah. There's this underlying terror. At least that's how I experience it. And, you know, I've now watched it way more times than any human being should have. But uh, anyways, <laughs> so I'm actually would love to know what you you guys think about it. Uh, yeah, we'll it's a good, good payoff at the end. Yeah. It's a yeah. slow burn. And then yeah. and then you get the uh, the interrogation of the guy in the room. Yeah. Isn't, isn't Brad Dereef amazing? He, yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he, he got a best actor or best supporting actor award at the Cannes Film Festival for that he should have gotten the freaking Oscar uh it's like uh it just that his performance is absolutely astounding I mean George C. Scott's performance is amazing yeah but it's George C. Scott doing being George C. Scott that's that's, yeah he was always if you're looking for a powerful growling angry man George (laughs) C. Scott's your guy it's like that's he's one of my favorite actors of all time it's just like his 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 big emotional explosions uh, in stuff like that, and in this movie, like they're, they're really well motivated. Like there's yeah. the the great the great you know. And again, this is the thing. Like I can spend I would spend as much or more time with this movie talking about the characters, the characterization, like the actual the performances of the actors, but the, the characters themselves and the plot and the story and the underlying logic of it, as I would about oh, wasn't that part terrifying, and wasn't that part terrifying. When I've taught uh, writing classes uh, on story, and I've done a couple of them on specifically on horror, and uh, so you know the scene it, with uh, Amy Keating, the nurse in the uh, in the corridor, when there's it's the middle of the night, there's already been murders in the hospital, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and so she's alone working the night shift, and then she goes into the guys, she hears this weird sound, she goes into the hospital room, and so like and it's like, most of the scene is this one long static shot of the corridor. Oh right? yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And then she goes into the guy's room, and there's like the weird sound, and she's trying to figure it out. Yeah. And then it's the ice melting in in the jar in the, in the cup, and she's. And what I love about that is it's it's I've I've taught that scene uh, that I've shown a couple other scenes, but like that scene was the major part of that writing class because what I was trying to point out is like, look what happens when you invest in character. Right. Because who is she? She is a nurse working the night shift where nobody else is around and everybody is asleep in an old hospital in Georgetown. uh, You know, and there have been murders in the hospital Mm -hmm. and like multiple murders around and everybody's kind of freaked out. And how would you react if you're the only person, especially if, you know, 
sorry for the gender stereotype, but if, if you're the only woman around and there's like something weird going on, you know, you might just be a little, you know, and there's a potential serial killer or something, you might be a little terrified. And so, but she has a job to do. She's a nurse. Right. There's something weird going on and that I got to go check and find, for all I know, that guy's trying to reach for the button to whatever the hell they had in the 1980s to <laughs> let you know that they were, thought they were dying. Um, <laughs> it was just, I think it was just, it was a, di- it was just a dinosaur tail, right? They would just pull on it. <laughs> where's, where's the, I think I'm dying button. Yeah. Like, no, change my bedpan button. No. <laughs> anyway, so she goes to like the, the, Jets, the Jetsons hospital. Yeah. That'd be amazing. That would be amazing. I like that now. Um, so she gets, she gets into that room and like, so she's doing her job as a nurse and she, and, and it's like, but you can, it's beautifully played. Cause she's like, she's in the room and she's like, what's going on with this weird noise. And you know, like, I think most of us understand I don't care how rationalist you are, how, how logical you are, whatever. Most of us at some point have had the experience of alone, at night, weird sound that you can't identify. And no matter how logical you are, you just get a, some part of your primate brain gets a little freaked out. And she's exactly that. She's a little freaked out. Then she realizes the source of the sound and she's like... Oh, thank God. Okay. It's just that I, I was being silly. And at that moment, the guy in the bed wakes up and he's pissed off. Cause like, what are you doing <laughs> right. creeping around my room? I'm going to report you. Yeah. yeah and, it's like, so, and, and so he's completely real too. And, and what's great about that is that the soundtrack didn't suddenly blast music to terrify you. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, he doesn't, they didn't like turn up his volume. Like, he reacts like a guy who's just, you know, kind of opened his eyes and noticed somebody standing over his freaking bed in the hospital in the middle of the night. And he's like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> it's like, and just that reaction, he's angry. She's, she's, ter- she's terrified all over again. Cause just when she got relaxed, then he scares the crap out of her with yelling. And it's like, there's all these beautiful, there's all, so many beautiful scenes in the movie that build tension that way. Um, you know, and yeah. that's one of, of investing in the reality of the characters. I, just, I, I go on about that scene for about another hour, but uh, anyway, <laughs> I won't. So. Uh, like, so what? What was your guys' verdict on it? Like the thumbnail verdict. Like, did you like it? Well, not so much. Was it boring as crap for you? Or I, I really, I really liked it. I the especially with the the dialogue is so heavily stylized, and it does. There's this like creepy foreboding atmosphere it's building in the beginning, but then there are. Oh man, I cracked up right in the beginning where there's like the wind is blowing through the church. And then the statue of Jesus on the on the cross opens his eyes. I fuck. I yes. lost. I laughed so hard. I was watching this movie by myself, and that oh, that made me lose it. Um, but then just the dialogue between between um, George C. Scott's character and the uh, and the preacher or the priest. Um, yes, it was so quippy, and it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't realistic, but it was like it felt like comedy, like something you'd see on the stage written to get laughs. I mean, it was very, you know, joke, 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 you know? Well, it's, yeah, it's, and it's, well, and the th- what's cool about it is, and, and I'll actually suggest that it actually, the dialogue is actually very realistic, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's very stylized, but it's very realistic and it's real, but it's the kind of dialogue that the vast majority of screenwriters cannot write. Mm-hmm. If they try to, it comes off terrible. And the point is, and even if they do write it, the committees that are usually involved in the story structure will pull out scenes, pull out chunks, and pull out things so that whatever you're left with is a mess. The reason, and the thing is, in that sense, though, the the dialogue is very 
generally speaking, it's actually quite Tarantino, mm-hmm. right? And and the thing is, like the secret to Tarantino's success is no mystery to anybody who either knows anything about the psychology of actors, or uh, certainly anybody in my generation who's grown up. It's like um, because. In Hollywood, the rule, especially since the 80s, the 70s, 80s, whatever, the rule in Hollywood was the audience is stupid. It has no attention span. You know, if we wanted to do Shakespeare, we'd do Shakespeare. Right. Otherwise, everything better be dumbed down and, and superficial. And Tarantino has proven, you know, Tarantino is the Joe Rogan of filmmakers. Like, he's proved repeatedly that characters talking endlessly about interesting shit will hold an audience's attention. Right. Like, Pulp Fiction, how long is the dialogue between John Travolta and Samuel Jackson before they ever go in the room to shoot, you know, flock of seagulls? And you know, when, Uma Thurman, when Uma Thurman is ODing on the heroine, it's really the ivermectin is getting shot into her chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and William Peter Blatty himself is, I, I mean, he's a novelist. He's also, uh, if my memory isn't betraying he's also a playwright and of course he, he was a filmmaker and and wrote films he made them if you want if you've never seen the ninth configuration um uh very cool movie very stylized um tom conti i think is the guy's name is the actor in it uh stacy keach tom mm-hmm. conti a couple other guys uh <clears throat> fabulous it's very much a stage play, right? Like it's a, it's like a, like I, I don't know that it was it was written. He wrote it as a novel. I don't know if he ever wrote it as a play, but it it comes off like a stage play. But the reason it comes off like a stage play is the same reason that, except for his brilliant visual styling, a lot of Tarantino's stuff comes off as a stage play, mm-hmm. which is because, oh my God, they pulled. There's a room full of guys or people. They pulled the camera back and let them talk to each other. Right. And, right. And, that's what you like. The reason that most people find theater immersive is while one character is having their psychotic break or ranting or raving, you can still see all the other people in the room reacting to it. Right. But right. on film, they immediately, you know, especially this is one of the number one ways that filmmakers kill comedy. Like so many filmmakers can't do comedy in the modern era. It's insane because they don't understand comedy is action and reaction at the same time. Right. And they right. zoom in on the guy who's freaking out. And then they cut over to the guy who's reacting, and then they cut to the guys. It's like, you know what would have been really funny? Watching that guy reacting as that guy was freaking out, which you could have done if you just pulled the damn camera back. <laughs> right. but, but they don't know how to do it. And William Peter Blatty, uh, the other thing about Exorcist 3, I'm jumping all over the place, but another great thing about Exodus 3 is it's a, it's a revenge on corporate Hollywood as well. Mm-hmm. Because... He was an established filmmaker and trained filmmaker when the, when his first novel was going to be made into a movie, and he wanted to direct it. And they were like, we are not letting you direct it. You're, this is going to be high profile. So they gave it to William Friedkin, and his fights with William Friedkin about how the movie was handled are somewhat legendary. Um, you know, I liked The First Exorcist. Like, yeah, I think yeah. it's like, yeah, whatever. I have nothing to compare it to. I feel I would probably have liked it more if William Peter Blatty directed it um, because he is more stylist, but he is, he pays insane attention to detail um, and insane attention to the audio. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's like an, a, a rule of filmmaking and cinematographers hate this and, and, and you know, like, but the, the number one rule of filmmaking and the audio guys are right. If your audio sucks, your movie sucks. Right. Yeah. So, wait, you you can and I mean you can you can te- you can put this to the test anytime. You can you can put if you could put
put the TV on, you know, and, uh, I don't know, put, put any movie on. And, I don't know, smear a piece of glass with Vaseline and put it in front of your TV screen. You can sort of tune out the shitty image and just listen to the dialogue and still more or less know what's going on. But, take that away, have a perfectly pristine screen, and, you know, like, as we all experience in the modern age with digital transmission, like, you get a storm coming through in Indiana if you're getting something over, you know, your internet's acting up, so all of a sudden the internet's, the, the audio is choppy. I defy you to watch that for more than, like, 30 seconds to a minute before you turn it off. Right. It's like, it's just, it's unbearable. So, uh, <laughs> that being said, of course, this movie was made in 1990 when, um, you know, everything is all still done on film. Mm -hmm. The expense of post-processing your audio is unbelievably huge compared to the digital age. So that, and the number one thing that will wreck your emotional buy-in to movies from that era will be the fact that so much of the dialogue is overdubbed. Uh, right. Like it, it's been, it's been re-recorded afterwards. They still do that, yeah. but the ability to re-record it and then merge it into the soundtrack so so that you. So it sounds like the person's in the room they're in as opposed to being in a studio recording booth. Right. Uh, that's the number one disconnect in almost any movie. That I, it's like the, and most people have no idea when, that when they say that movie sucked, nine times out of ten, uh, assuming the story and all that stuff wasn't crap, nine times out of ten, if you think a movie or a performance sucked, it's the audio. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like that's a perfectly good delivery of that line by that actor. It's completely competent, but the way the sound has been mixed your brain registers that, wait a minute, he's, he's in a nightclub. And we've all been in nightclubs. Right. You scream into your buddy's ear from this far away. You can be rupturing his eardrum. He's still, he's like, what? <laughs> you know, meanwhile, Alec Baldwin's in a nightclub, you know, in the shadow or whatever. And he's like, oh, that knife. You know, it's like, that's, he talks like that and you completely hear him. Right, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good ball. Yeah, it's almost that's like... Uh, from the <laughs> well, it's almost like an uncanny valley type thing, you know. It's it's it just not quite. Well, well said. Yeah. The uncanny valley of audio, yeah. yeah. Well, well said. That's, I'm gonna totally use that. <laughs> I've never thought of that before. Beautiful, beautiful. Right. But, but I, uh, I, I like what you said about because I I'd heard of that of the ninth configuration before, but it wasn't until I watched this movie and I was looking into it that I realized. So, like after they made Exorcist one, the first one, and it was hugely successful, they made the second one as a cash grab, which pretty much everybody agrees blows. No, but I don't, I don't know that anybody likes that. The second exorcist movie. Um, I'm the only guy you'll probably ever meet who likes that movie, but with a huge caveat. Okay. I've I never actually, seen it. I like the movie for itself. It is a terrible sequel to the exorcist. Oh. It has nothing to do with the exorcist. If you just watched it and said, if you erase the word exorcist from the title and just watch it, right. what it's talking about is interesting. But, uh, and actually, and that was always my feeling for it. And the only other guy in the world who I think feels the same way is, um, God damn it. His name's going to head. Uh, was it Alan Parker? Alan Parker directed that one. Oh, I'm not uh, sure. I, know, I didn't see that one. Can you look at uh, who directed exorcist two? It's, uh, yeah. Names of my head. Yeah, I can look it up. I can't remember if it was Alan Parker or not. It's the same guy who did Emerald Forest and Excalibur. Uh, oh, John Borman? John Borman, thank you. That's why the hell was I thinking Alan Parker? <laughs> um, John Borman, uh, and uh, and and he and he 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 wrote an essay about that film, and he said he said straight up the studio said we're making a sequel to The Exorcist. There isn't really a book for it or whatever. You can you can do whatever you want, 
we're just going to slap the Exorcist 2 title on it. <laughs> and he had a movie he'd been trying to make, what, and he, what he wanted to talk about was the role of mythology and storytelling in culture. Which, uh-huh. like, So in terms of our current cultural zeitgeist, depending on what your algorithms feed you and what you pay attention to, this is an incredibly important conversation that's been happening in the last 10 years. This guy was like 30 years ahead of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an eternal conversation, but it's... It's, it's a very interesting one. Anyway, uh, and he he fully admitted in the essay, he was like, yeah, he goes, I had this story and I was trying to talk about it and it was about the importance of mythology and like our need for mythology. Like it's not, we don't just leave this crap behind because we think we're so modern and smart. A lot of this stuff that maybe doesn't have, liter- you know, and like religion is tied up in that too, right? I mean, Joseph Campbell is like, you know, mythology is just other people's religion was his definition right? right it was like you know it's like your religion's real everyone else's is mythology right yeah okay well thing is but his point was like regardless this serves a function for humanity and that was what he really wanted to talk about and uh, and so he does in that movie right which is a very interesting movie and a really terrible sequel to the exorcist it's just it's it's awful but uh yeah anyway yeah, right. I, I, but i'm probably the only person who's ever watched it you know more than once and actually kind of enjoyed i was like i don't this movie has nothing to do with the exorcist but it's kind of interesting to me <laughs> well i've never well if i do is it if true i do that, that the exorcist 3 what we watched was sort of like they had a shell of a movie and they just called it exorcist 3 no. And they included an exorcism in, in it. No, uh, no. Exorcist three is actually was written by William Peter Blatty. He, he wrote a novel, which was the sequel to The Exorcist, which is called Exorcist uh, Legion, mm-hmm. right, which is what the novel the novel is called. So the, the actual title of the movie, if we're misleading anybody, is The Exorcist Three Legion. That's right. that's the full title. Uh, and uh, so he, uh, anyway, so he. Um, he wrote it, he wrote the novel, and the studios, as they were, you know, it was like the studios were coming up to, I think they'd done, no, they hadn't done that yet. So, so studios were like, oh, cool, a sequel to The Exorcist, we want to buy the rights to that. And and William Peter Blatty, by this point, had both an, enough of an established career, and I'm sure more than enough fuck you money, uh, and also enough uh, aggression left over from what he didn't like about what Billy Friedkin did with his move, with his novel, to go... Yeah, and if you guys want to see a penny of the of the returns, here's the deal. I'm directing the movie, and you don't get to screw with me. I'm right. doing it my way. And uh, they had no choice. It was like, you know, because the novel's out, and the novel was a huge seller, right? Like, it was right. like, it's like, oh, my God, a sequel to The Exorcist? Are you kidding? So the novel was a massive seller, it was like he, and probably his deal for the novel was good enough for him at the time. And it's like, I don't need to make any more money. Right. Like, you, 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 want the, you want the movie. I make the movie. I come with it, yeah. Exactly. And so he and he considers this the third of what he calls his faith trilogy, right? Which is the first Exorcist, the ninth configuration, and then the Exorcist three. Correct. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 a very interesting guy, and uh, it's like I I haven't I mean I've read interviews with him and stuff like that, and I know a little bit about the background of how the movie came to be, but most mostly the politics of you know like him going yeah I'm I'm you want this movie, it's my movie, and no, you don't get to hire Billy Friedkin or anybody else. It's like, I, it's my movie, and I make it my way. Um, and uh, years later, I have the Blu-ray uh, and that includes a director's cut. Mm-hmm. Now, the director's cut, they're like, I think it's more of a cash-grabby thing, because they're like, this This director's cut uh, conforms to uh, William Peter Blatty's like, original vision. And it's like, well, William Peter Blatty's 
was still alive or whatever, but like they com- they compiled it with like some extra footage or some low res footage. Like they were doing some cutting around to try and get another thing out of it. Right. And uh, I, I don't know. It's I I've started to watch it a couple times, and I'm just like, no, I because. I mean, I think Oliver Stone, I saw him lecturing once and, you know, and, and people were like, well, what do you think about like director's cuts? And he goes, look, that's for the studios to make money. That's fine. He goes like, as a director, the movie that comes out in the theater, whatever its limitations, the movie that comes out in the theater, that's the movie I made. Right. You know, yeah, there are, there's a few famous cases of producers fighting with filmmakers and taking over a project, right. uh, AKA Blade Runner. Right. Uh, so like fam- famously, um, and it's like, it, it depends, you know, like, Depends on when you saw Blade Runner. Like some, for for those of us, you know, again, I'm ancient, so like I saw Blade Runner in the theater when it came out, and it was like it's like that's that's the movie that made Blade Runner the iconic movie of one of the most iconic movies of all time. Had a massive impact on the visual visual design, both in film and in the real world, for like the next 25 years. They were teaching Blade Runner in uh, uh, design in architecture classes right. and stuff like that. So it's like that's not that's not based on the official Ridley Scott version that came out like eight years later with the voiceover removed. Right. Uh, that's based on the version with the voiceover in it. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, and the voiceover in it is the number one reason that most critics could have could, would go, Oh, it's kind of like uh, an old Sam Spadey mystery. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, but I can call it film noir. And then I sound really smart. Right. Uh, yeah. Which tells you about how much respect I have for critics. But. <laughs> I mean, that reminds me of the um, oh, what was that movie called? Dark City, where they were yeah. they 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 overdubbed the beginning, and like gave an in, like gave narration about the movie, and totally gave away the whole like there was no mystery. You know, like the first time you watch The Matrix, you're like, oh, what is this about? Trying to uncover the mystery. Well, with Dark City, they just slapped on some narration that's like, "Oh, here's what the movie's about. Here's what you're about to see. Don't worry about that's thinking about it." <laughs> Let us save you some time. Talked about that before. You're right. <laughs> yeah, it did. It really did undermine it. It, it, it was like it was, I was like watching the movie. Like this is really cool. You know what you shouldn't have done? Like ruined the mystery in the first five seconds. Right. <laughs> it told me what was I mean, going on. You could I mean, almost like encourage people watching that for the first time to skip. I was actually, I was just thinking that. I was like, you know what? When I show my daughters that movie, I'm going to just fucking skip the narration. Like, I'm not. You you can go back. You can always go back and say, okay, you know. Yeah. Like, the the narration in in the original Blade Runner, I mean, as much as, and it's like, and this is not a credit to Harrison Ford, because he's made a point of going that that he agreed with Ridley Scott that there shouldn't be the narration. So he went into, he's like, I I did the worst job I could do on the narration and they still used it. And the problem is, well, then doesn't that mean that people can't tell the difference between when you're acting well and when you're (laughs) doing your first? Right. Yeah. Because his first, his initial... When he when when Harrison Ford initially did the character, he was like, "Hello, Governor." Are you <laughs> he was channeling his inner Dick Van Dyke for the whole thing. But uh, yeah, no, he. Uh, but you know, he said that like. But the thing was that the narration um, is useful for establishing a little bit. Of, it's not so much that it's exposition. Right. Uh, it's like, but. But in a way, it is. It's orienting you in a world. Like I mean, it serves a function. And again, like. Nobody gets to argue with it. That's the version that was famous. Right. Yeah. Like the original Close Encounters, when Spielberg released that, the original Close Encounters, he released another version of Close Encounters like a year later. Like a, he released a director's cut in the theater 
like eight months or a year after the original one came out and was a super blockbuster. And the director's cut absolutely blows chunks. It's absolutely <laughs> shit. You know, it's like, and I remember like eons later, uh, uh, this uh, a girl I was dating at the time, she'd never seen the movie, and I was like, oh my god, you have to see this movie. And I rented the movie, not realizing it was it was like the director's cut, and I'm like, well, how different can it be, right? Uh, it's like everything that was great about that movie. Like in terms of the story, the suspense, the mystery uh, that's that's going on, it's all eradicated in the director's cut. Like huh. in the director's cut, there in the original cut, great uh, uh, whatever uh, Richard Dreyfus is like driving along in his pickup truck. You, you don't know there, there's a power outage, and you don't know there's any aliens. And then some guy, you know, like headlights kind of come up behind his truck, and he doesn't know. You know, he's like, ah, drive around, drive around, and he literally doesn't notice when instead of driving around, the headlights go up and over his truck. Right, okay. which is so like the whole audience, and like at that point in time, like the audience is like, "Holy crap!" Like, because you've never seen a movie like that before. You like you've introduced a really interesting concept. Something weirds going on here. What is it? And uh, in in the in the director's cut, it's like you know him driving along, and then there's like a gigantic shadow of the mothership moving across the field right beside him, and, uh, <laughs> like, and they right. actually have you know there's a big part of the suspense of the original version. These are spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen Close Encounters four years later. Right. Um, it's like, uh, and if you're young, I'm sorry about that. Um, but uh, like, there's there's a point later on where everyone is whatever the hell state. Uh, Whichever one of the states that has Devil's Tower in it, is it Wyoming? That is sounds right. Is it only right. Wyoming, or is it at the corner of several states? I'm not sure. That's a good question. Well, I... Wyoming. Actually, yeah, it has to be Wyoming. What am I saying? I have the mug. <laughs> Devil's Tower, Wyoming. There you go. Oh, nice. Right. nice. Uh, it's like, so anyway, so, so Wyoming. <laughs> Everyone looks at the picture that you have all these references <laughs> that you just pull from on mugs. What? You're like a yeah. library. Yeah, I have a li- I've got a library of mugs up here. It's like, allow me to grab my Exorcist 3 mug. <laughs> um, so, so all these people in Wyoming are, are panicking. In the original movie, uh, him and, and this other woman who are drawn by like mental processes to, to, to have drawn or sculpted Devil's Tower, like they, they're being sent messages by the aliens to come to Devil's Tower. You know, to to engage with the aliens, so they're drawn towards that. Meanwhile, everyone is leaving Wyoming because there's been a radioactive leak, a nuclear power meltdown, or some crap like that. Like, so there's a point in the story where they're like, everyone is leaving. They're getting you're headed one way, and it's like me in the snowdrift, snowdrive, <laughs> like last week. You're headed one way, and everyone else is headed the opposite way. It's like part of you should be thinking, especially in this case, you know, it's like, should we go on? And there's this great dramatic beat where the two of them are like, are, are we just insane? Are we like <laughs> heading towards dying from nuclear radiation or whatever the hell it is? You know, actually it wasn't nuclear radiation. It was supposed to be, I think a train derailment that gave off a gas that killed like livestock. Well, and so like, and, and, and then they actually, they're like, screw it. They steal a car and they start driving through and then they look and like the fields are covered in dead cows. Right. Right. So you're like, so as the audience, you're on the journey with them. And you're like, you guys just might have made a serious mistake. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> we, we don't know. In the director's cut, there's a scene like, I don't know where it is, like the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie where a bunch of governments are like, so how are we going to keep people out of here? Do we do a nuclear meltdown, a train derailment with guys? It's like, well, thanks, guys. Right. Like, Kill thanks. any suspense that we might have had. Yeah. Thank you for eradicating any notions of suspense that could possibly have been there. Yeah. But, well, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I was I gonna say I wanna I think we're we're bumping up against time, so I wanna uh, make sure we have time for our head cannons and everything before we go. But I wanted to talk about a couple things. One being that the scene where he like dreams about heaven and it's that bus terminal and there's like Fabio plays an angel and Patrick Ewing is the angel of death and like and I didn't. And really, Sam Jackson is there. And Samuel L. Jackson is in there. Like it's yeah, it's such yep. a such a strange scene. And they've got these big wings, you know. It's it's and everybody's head looks like it's been cut off and sewn back on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember yeah. when Fabio got hit by the bird on the roller coaster? Oh yeah, for sure. Yes, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but then, I remember, like watching watching this movie, and it's like you know at one point for for no other than the fact that it's set in Washington, so like you know they're they're in a bar or whatever, and then, oh there's there's a Larry King getting up and leaving the table, you know right. just, why? But, right, because it's Washington. Larry King had to be there. Yeah, William Peter Blatty was like, oh, just put him in the movie. You know, just yeah. I I know him, I know him a little bit. I'll put him in the movie. Um, first time. I, I, and it's, that was one of those interesting things. Uh, Samuel Jackson has has one line, and I I'm reasonably confident it's not actually his voice. I think it was overdubbed, but uh, but either way, he's he's like you know uh, uh, the the living are the living are deaf or something like that. And of course he's a he's a blind man sitting in the alcove of heaven, right. uh, and uh, and so that and uh, it it was so weird because I remember when I watched the movie the first time, first this you know, whatever for that brief moment he's the center of the frame, and he's one of those guys where he just. He struck me as really interesting, right? Like, and like, this is a one-line part, right? <laughs> this is like, this is a one-line part in a major movie, but it's a one-line part, and I'm just like, that guy's interesting. And then I, I can't remember. I don't even remember what the next thing was that I saw him in, where like he actually had a substantial role. And I'm like, oh, that's that's that guy who was in Exorcist Three. And someone was like, what? He wasn't in Exorcist Three. I was like, yeah, he's got like one line. And they're like, no way. And then we actually had to go and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> and you like, and no. you were like, way. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Yeah, the other guy who made a really great first impression on me, although, although it wasn't his first movie, but uh, was uh, Lawrence Fishburne in uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Three. Oh, He's really? the custodian in the in the in the hospital, and it's like, talk about elevating a role, man. Like it's <laughs> like there's there's nothing about his dialogue that is, it, it's all pretty functional and straightforward. He's just an orderly, you know. But it's like. But he invests in this character, and I just—I I was just like, I want to see this guy in a million more things. Yeah. He was—I think he was in Apocalypse Now as like a kid. Okay. Some of that, like he was yeah. Very, yeah, he was. In yeah, that is Lawrence Fishburne, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he's like a real scraggly little kid. <laughs> he's, he's a pretty skinny young, skinny young guy. He's Right? Is he speared by some people? <laughs> yeah, I think he dies, or well, everybody dies. Well, well listen to his mom, like on tape. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's not, you know, I've, I've, I've had that experience. You just like jogged a memory of like, I had that experience with, uh, Charlize Theron in, what was it? Two days in the Valley or something like that. Uh, one of the, yes. and then, um, when I saw Edward Norton in primal fear, I was like, I was like, Oh fuck. Who's that guy? You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's some actors. You just, you see them in the, that little, you see them in that little role. And I mean, Wilford Brimley in absence of malice. I mean, here's a, it's a cow character role at the end of the movie. He he plays this you know circuit court judge or whatever who comes in to judge uh, to straighten out this whole film noir thing. If you've never seen Absence of Malice, it's well worth watching. It's a uh, Paul Newman, uh, Sally Field, uh, stuff like that. It's sort of a it's sort of about corrupt journalism back when there still was journalism. 
in in like the you know and it was newspapers uh so that but it's like yeah like late 70s early 80s but uh wilford brimley who went on to be in cocoon and stuff like that but right. he's got like one of one of the, he's got the role that like uh speaking as a character actor myself he's he's got the role that like character actors kill for it's just it's, it would would just kill for because it. it's like this whole movie is going along, and then all of a sudden, in comes this guy. You know, it's not that he's never been in anything before necessarily, but I'd never seen him in anything before, and right. most people hadn't. Yeah. Most people weren't aware. I don't. I don't know if, what he, how much he had done before actually, but it wasn't much, and almost no one knew who he was. And he just gets this golden role, and uh, and is, he's the judge of this scene, and he just steals the freaking movie almost. <laughs> which, when Paul Newman's in a movie, is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. But, right. Um, so would you would you guys give Exorcist three a thumbs up? Would you give it a thumbs down? What would you what do you think? I, I'd give oh, it a, yeah, yeah I, oh I would definitely recommend watching it. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's not anything I expected, but man, like you were talking about that scene in the corridor, and then like the the long scene. I think there are like two pretty long scenes with um with Brad Dorif where he's just like, and I you know I also got vibes of because I had seen an old clip of an interview with Tom Waits. Where a lot of people say that that's kind of where uh, Heath Ledger got his yeah yeah like Heath Ledger got his inspiration from the the Joker but I I almost wonder if Heath Ledger had seen this movie because like man there are a couple times where Brad Dourif like really gives me that kind of like the Joker vibe you know. That's actually that's actually actually a really cool reference because I remember when like when. Uh, Heath Ledger to the Joker, which was just phenomenal. It was a fun, you know, it's like, and the other thing is like, I, I always try to be the, the a balancing voice because it's like, you know, like actors are great and like uh, the right actor in the right part at the right time can elevate it beyond anything. But uh, regardless, it still starts with the script. Right. Yeah. No, you know, the, tr- the, the, the sad truth is if any other equally brilliant actor because i think keith ledger was a brilliant actor but there are a lot of brilliant actors and if any other brilliant actor had had that script like and was working with christopher nolan i think we would talk about them in the same glowing terms that we talk about heath ledger because that that was a role that you'd have to fuck up like and and honestly it's christopher nolan i'm pretty sure if you were fucking it up he'd fire you and replace you right like somebody who isn't gonna fuck it up but anyway uh, yeah it's it's, uh when somebody was saying like and then you take the catheter and you put it up. Yeah. 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 And, it, and the head comes off clean. Yeah. <laughs> that, that whole yeah. model is amazing. And that's what I said to somebody. Somebody, somebody was talking about They're like, oh, my God. When have you ever seen another character that's like, that's that evil, that's that powerful? I'm like, have you ever seen Exorcist 3? Right. <laughs> you should, you should yeah. check it out. Oh, Brad And they do actually brilliant stuff uh, with his, again, talking about the audio production. Um the most of a lot of the terrifying effects in the movie are audio effects. They're part of the soundtrack. There's, there's, there's like these weird growls and yeah. weird noises, but they're not really overused, but they just create this underlying tension. And then, then they actually, if you go back and watch it, uh, they totally uh, fuck with Brad DeReef's voice. Yeah. Right. So he's, you know, cause like that line you're talking about, you know, you know, you know, it's like, and then you, you squeeze the legs, squeeze the blood manually into the, and his voice is going up like freaking Mickey Mouse almost, right? Like they, mm, you, yeah. you listen over the course of that scene and like the, the, they go from processing his voice as though it's slowed down so it's kind of creepy and growly and then they take it up to the, and you squeeze the blood manually into the tubes. There's a little pounding and, and shaking at the end for the dregs. It's not perfect, but the overall effect, Lieutenant, you know, it's like just, ah, <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah. it just goes and, and then, and, like, and then all when, that time when he like gets up and is like screaming at George C. Scott, and then all of a sudden just sort of stop. Oh, good 
could this be? What, was I raving? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, like, I mean, the writing is beautiful, but he just did so much with it, and it's just yeah. like, Corey, yeah. now it's your turn. Now you have to do your imitation of him. Of oh, yeah. of the Joker, <laughs> or, or, of, or of this guy. guy. No, no, no. Oh man, he. I, I wouldn't even want to, man. He's. It's. It's worth it to watch his performance alone. I. It I, is. I say, but uh. Yeah. It's. It's one of the few horror movies. Like I mean, most horror movies, you are not watching for the acting, the dialogue, and in a lot of cases, even the story. Right. Like yeah. real, realistically, even like when you get a horror movie that has a really good story. Usually the acting, the dialogue, or some element of production level is missing. Like, I love John Carpenter movies because they traded in really good ideas. He was a really smart guy. So, like, Prince of Darkness is an incredibly smart horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the Mouth of Madness is probably the best H.P. Uh, Lovecraft-style horror movie made. That You know, like, whatever, it wasn't, it's not direct, it's just H.P. Lovecraft style, right? right it's yeah. John Carpenter's take on it. And it's like, both of those movies, like, when you watch them, there's there's a cheesiness to them and the cheesiness has to do with the level of production that the budget allowed the level of audio production that was allowed and sort of like there's there's sort of a stilted quality to some of the acting so you're like these are good actors i mean it's sam neill for god's sake in the mouth of madness like i mean the performances are good but there's they don't feel top like you don't you're never going to expect any of these guys to get nominated for you know I almost said an Oscar, but you know, like a meaningful acting award because that's, 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 that's been gone for a long time. But, uh, but you know, like what anyone out there who's actually going to reward really good acting very rarely is going to find an example of it, even from a great actor in a horror movie. Right. Whereas, yeah. whereas I actually feel like the, the, the audio things aside, like, I mean, the, the, the dialogue exchanges between, uh, you know, George C. Scott and, uh, God damn, his name's gone out of my head. The guy playing the priest Ed, Ed yeah. Myers. Oh right. uh, no 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 Ed Ed uh, Ed Flanders yeah thank you thank you very much uh, Ed Flanders uh, is like you know like those and those two guys actually he has an appearance in uh, the Changeling as well okay. they are apparently I believe I read somewhere that him and George C Scott were good friends in real life uh, but uh, and that's and actually the thing is like you watch in that scene where he's talking when George C Scott has the monologue about the carp right, right? yeah yeah the carp in the tub I love that yeah. So what I love about that is, like, someone would go, you know, and, and oftentimes, like, I get it. Like, people will go, well, that's, like, overly stylized and fake. And it's like, but, uh, that being said, you know, it's it's like, but these are guys who've known each other and associated with each other for, like, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, he might be, just be telling this story just to make the other guy laugh. Right, yeah. Right? But that's, yeah. that's the way that they fuck with each other or whatever. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, anyway. And then, uh, well, and one thing I, I, looking, just reading about this. I read that the uh, the guy who's doing the Halloween trilogy right now, the new Halloween trilogy, he just released Halloween Kills and then Halloween Ends this year. I guess he's working on a new Exorcist trilogy. Uh, David Gordon Green, I guess that's his next project. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't seen I haven't seen the new Halloween Halloween movie, so uh, yeah. I, I you're not missing anything. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. All right, well, yeah, Brent, I, I know we got to get going here. Um, so do you yeah. guys do you guys want to give your head cannon, or I can go first? It doesn't matter to me. I first. You go first. Okay. Okay. Well, I was just thinking that, you know, after all this going down, uh, uh, Kinderman, Kinderman, he just wants to take a break, right? I mean, this is a lot to go through. Um, he almost lost his daughter, so he wants to take a break. They take a little va- family vacation. They go to a, they go to an amusement park and they're just unwinding and they get on a roller coaster, right? So he's riding in the front of a roller coaster and then 
And at the same time, there's an angel flying around doing like guardian <laughs> angel work. And then, and then he looks up and he realizes it's Fabio as an angel. It's angel Fabio and smack. He just like plows right into George C. Scott's face. Uh, and, and then bloodies his nose on the roller coaster. That is cool. And Brett, Brett, what's yours? Well, I learned about a guy today. His name is um, Dan Donnelly. Okay. okay. He was a he was a bare knuckle boxer in the 1800s. Okay. All right. He's really good. He died at 31 um, of pneumonia. They bury him, right? Grave robbers come, dig him up, and sell him to a doctor, right? Okay. This is a this Dan Donnelly dude. He's famous. The the uh, the doctor recognized him because he was he's like into boxing, and he's like, oh shit, like I can't, I can't operate on this guy. Other people will know who it is. Right. So late at night, he returns the body to the grave, but he takes and he collects the right arm of Dan Donnelly because of of his like boxing skill. The dude was lanky as shit. I mean, the guy's reach is insane. <laughs> He keeps the arm and preserves it. And you can actually find Dan Donnelly's arm today. It looks like a strip of giant leather. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's insane, right? He, <laughs> he replaced the body but kept the arm. And it's like it's like exchanged hands, like, you know, like Skip and Trip. Right, like all these pun intended. Are yeah, and so, and so I was thinking, like, okay, like that, that priest, right, he gets, like, he gets like stir fried on the wall with like no oil. Right. And he gets like, <laughs> right. His like cheek rips off. You know, like when you, when you do a chicken breast, like it's like, you don't put enough oil or right. the pan. Try to flip it too early. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so like that, like that cheek, that cheek gets off. And then like the Catholic church is like, we need to preserve this as a relic. Right. Yes. And they embed it, they embed it in glass, you know, and that years and years. And then as people come to visit visit the cheek of this priest, it's like encased now in like a cactus flower that like begins to grow and, and blooms every year. Uh-huh. Okay. For all the children. Nice. So yeah, like a like a hippie priest cactus. I love it. <laughs> it's genius. You, you, you've invented a new it's a new relic and uh, and and yeah. It's and as and as a result, it ignites a whole new level of faith. All <laughs> kinds of people flock to the Catholic Church instead of running away from it, and and weirdly, because of the uh, mythology in which this this movie is set, uh, that actually stops the devil from taking over the world. <laughs> right? Yeah. If I if I saw a cactus growing out of a cheek, I'd be like, yeah, well, shit, maybe, maybe, <laughs> yes. maybe. Maybe I should go give well, that's like, and that's like that great, you know, that's the 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 meaning, the, the meaning in it, right? Like, like I, I I love that whole bit that George C. Scott has at the end, where the guys, you know, have I helped your unbelief? Right. You know, and he's like, yep, yep. I just like, it's, it's and, I, and I like that he uses the word correctly. It's like not a question of faith. It's like, what do you believe in? And he goes, yeah, I I believe in you, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> it's like, uh, so yeah. my 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 head would be would be, uh, and and this is a. Uh, if you've been listening to this conversation, you haven't seen this movie. Stop now and go watch the movie before I say this, because it's it's just silly and stupid, but it's gonna wreck something for you. So please go watch the movie. Stop now. There's no conversation after this. Four, three, two, one, go away. All right, that's all the warning I can give. All right. So at the end of the movie, when uh, George C. Scott uh, and his cop buddy are standing, looking down into the grave where they're finally going to put the body of Damien Karras where it belongs. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to see the next five minutes 
when the other guy attempts to arrest George C. Scott for shooting a man right? in an asylum with a straight jacket on. Right. Right? Because we all saw Brad Dereef, but no one else did. Right, yeah, how we do all they... saw the Gemini killer. That guy never left his room. <laughs> yeah. George right. C. Scott went into an asylum and shot a guy <laughs> repeatedly and then finished him off in the head. Right. You know, it's, a, it's like, but he's just standing there by the grave. So the other guy is going to turn. So what happens is the other guy turns to him, pulls out his cuffs and goes, it's time for you to go to prison. And George C. Scott pulls out his gun. And because the guy's a co-worker of his, he smacks him across the head and knocks him out Hollywood style. Right. And George C. Scott goes, I've got very limited time before they catch me. And so George C. Scott goes on a, uh, a Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry Rampage, and he finds every <laughs> mid-level bureaucrat, uh, whiny politician, uh, social worker, what everyone who ever stood in the way of him putting criminals behind bars, and he just starts taking them all out until eventually you know, somebody guns him down. <laughs> oh, man. Like wow. That's, I, yeah, that's a hell of a movie. I, I, that's, that's the gaping hole that sort of has to be answered. Like, isn't he going to jail now? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, because it's a storied career. You might, if it's over, you might as well go out in style. Right. <laughs> yeah, I almost wonder if he could make the argument like, no, look, this guy's look, Damian Karras, He's he already has a tombstone. He's already dead. You know, can uh, yeah. can I be can well, I be arrested for killing yeah. a dead man? Right. Yeah, he's like uh, maybe it just makes the whole. Uh, I'm George C. Scott, and I'll hit you with a growly monologue if you try and arrest me. Yeah. I, I felt so bad for that one nurse that he kept blowing up on. He kept yelling at that one nurse. I was like, that oh. poor woman. Oh, yeah. Well, she, but she, uh, Nancy Fish played her. She was great because she's the one, you know, the one who's like, I'm a bitch. Right, yeah. That, yeah. yeah like, she was such a great character, like, just so, like, really cool. And again, that's that's that other thing that only, uh, only real writers like Tarantino or William Peter Blatty, like, like people that I really respect as writers, that's a dangerous thing. That they create characters that are not necessarily likable. In fact, yeah. they are unlikable in the specific way that real people often are. Right. Like she has a job to do. Her, you know, it's like, and, and she's actually smiling. Well, there's nothing unusual. There's nothing normal about that man. And he's like, you seem amused by that. Hey, it's into. I, I change bedpans for a living. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. There's one interesting person here that gives me something to think about other than my dead end, you know, shit and piss covered job, you know, <laughs> for which I probably for which I probably don't get paid enough because that's all that's that's always an eternal truth, right? right? Yeah. I've got to respond to I'm dying buttons. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> right. So we'll bring bring that yeah, I think I maybe I'm dying. You come tell me. You're the expert. You're the expert. You come let me know. I don't know. But uh, but Brent, I know you've got to get uh, get to put your kids to bed. Todd, was there is there anything else you want to plug or, or point people toward uh, before we, we leave off here? Uh, you know what? No, but if but if anybody is total opposite of comedy, if anybody is looking for a good silly laugh and you want to buy one of my books, that would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's Todd McGinnis, T O D D M C G I N N I S. You can find search me on Amazon. You'll find Thunderbolts and Dunderheads or Knave of Hearts. They have very silly covers. You can't you can't mistake them for anything they're other. Both than... on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Is that... He said yeah. they're both on Amazon. So. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Right. Todd, God, it's great talking to you, man. I, I love talking to you, dude. I was uh, surprised. I like you'd forgotten my name. I'd forgotten yours in our list of of guests that we have every week. And when Corey said it was you, I was like, I was I was totally stoked. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. I, I, want to, I want to catch up with him. Yeah, he's he was like, who's who's you, this? Who's... You and Tracy, man, you guys are like a super cool power couple. <laughs> like, I love talking to you guys. 
uh, I hope that my wife and I are as cool as you guys <laughs> as, as we move on. Well, she, she's pretty cool. She's in New Orleans right now. So oh, she, hell yeah. Okay. She, she got out in front of the snowstorm. She was like, oh, this winter craft's coming. Uh, it's like, uh, I have a business trip in New Orleans. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, she, she, yeah, she, she peaced out real quick. <laughs> yeah, she did. New Orleans sounds great right now. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't marry no dummy. She's smart. <laughs> she married a dummy, but hey, that's not my problem. <laughs> You did. Yeah, that's good. That's what I did. Yeah. I just <laughs> guys again and talk again. Uh, I'll, I'll hang out with you guys anytime. It's just so much fun. Awesome. Yeah, hell yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to have you back. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Head Cannon. Yeah! Oh,